Well, good morning. That wasn't very friendly. Let's try that again. Good morning. Good to see so many visitors with us today and and to see you all who have come out on this Lord's Day to worship the Lord. There's nothing more important than that to do on His day. I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Thessalonians. Obviously, we are taking a break from our exposition in the book of Ephesians. Lord willing, next week we will be back in that exposition in chapter 4. But for today, I wanted to preach a special message and just asking ourselves, what are we thankful for? If you celebrate Thanksgiving around uh, the holiday table, perhaps you went around and perhaps different ones of you shared the things that you're thankful for. Very common things that are often shared, um, that I even shared. I'm thankful for my family, thankful for physical provision, abundance that we have in this land in which we live. Um, Thankful for jobs, to be able to provide, and so forth. And these are all good and noble things to be thankful for. Make no mistake about it. Maybe some of your children were thankful that after Thanksgiving it becomes Christmas season and you can look forward to December 25th. And... um, to get those gifts and so forth. But as I began to ponder this, and obviously shared some more spiritual things around the table which I shared, I was just reflecting back on four years ago when I was in Africa, in East Africa, in Tanzania, visiting on one of our days where we weren't teaching one of the pastors that we were working with, Pastor Romanus, in his home. His home was a very simple home. It had a very small bedroom about the size of a bed, with a little bit of room to walk around it, a small front room with dirt floors, one window, I can't remember if there was a front door, dirt floor, very, very basic, one little hutch cabinet with cracked glass on it, on the, on the, on the doors and so forth, and yet this family, with their three-year-old little girl, was very content with what they had, very content, and it was, uh, it was convicting for me because I think of all the comforts I have and yet I can find myself grumbling and complaining about the silliest things. And so it helped to put things in perspective um, yet again. And so again, I'll, I'll ask you, let's suppose you around your Thanksgiving table, you were in some other country and what was served was a handful of rice and maybe a few beans. But you had Christ. Would that be enough? for you to still be thankful? Would you say, I've got all the spiritual provisions provided for me in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's enough? And to be thankful just to have enough food to sustain you, to press on and to live another day. You need to ask yourself, would you have been as thankful? Most of us probably had 10, 11, 12 different items to eat around the table, and yet there are many in the world who are content with very little because of their spiritual provision that they have in Christ. So the title of my message is Thanksgiving for Salvation and Its Fruits. And uh, we'll be looking here at, really, if you are in Christ, there has been a complete spiritual transformation. The things that now provoke thanks within you are spiritual things. You are a new creature in Christ. Now the context of this epistle the very early letter of Paul, First and Second Thessalonians, probably written just months apart. Um, but this church was a struggling church. It was a persecuted church. And he wrote to bring them encouragement and to clear up some misconceptions on the day of the Lord and the coming of the Lord and so forth. 
and he, in the, the, the scripture reading towards the end of chapter 2 here set up the context of, of these who are given over to believe these lies, the, a delusion. But Paul says, but, in verse 13, we should always give thanks to God for you. In other words, there is a marked difference between the remnant of this church, a struggling church, a persecuted church, and those who are deluded. So let's read the text before us, and I'd like to read just verses 13 to 17 for us once again. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our Gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm, hold to the traditions which were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Amen. Let's pray once again. Our Father, we do ask that you would hear our cry this morning. Lord, we pray that you would reveal something of the matchless grace of Christ, that you would reveal something upon the goodness of God in electing us from before the foundation of the world, realizing that we will sure to persevere unto the end and be glorified, and even the subsequent responsibilities that we have to stand firm and to hold fast to the truth. So Lord, we pray that you'd send the Spirit during this hour. We pray that you would give us hearts of understanding. And we pray, Lord, that we would be changed more and more into the image of Christ. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, in contrast to these who are deceived and bound for judgment, Paul is thankful for this group, and he wants to give them some encouragement in his second letter to them. Uh, the first two verses that I read, 13 and 14, describe the complexity of God's redemptive plan from beginning to end. It's laid out very clearly in those verses. And, you know, there's questions that often arise when you talk about the doctrine of election, and some pundits will say, well, why should a Christian be motivated to obedience? If God elects, he's going to cause him to persevere. Well, you see, Paul's theology of salvation never produces a carnal lifestyle or an idleness leading to inactivity. There's to be activity, a response on our behalf as we live out the Christian life and as we live for the glory of God and for Him alone. Another way to put it, verses 13 and 14 sets forth the indicative, what God has done for us in Christ. In verse 15, we see the imperative, what we are to do. Another, word, another way of putting it, it's a practical application of the doctrine that he has just set forth. And Paul often does, does this. He applies the truth for us. And we'll consider this simple passage before us under three heads. You have been chosen and called by the triune God for salvation. Secondly, hold tenaciously to the truth. And thirdly, your motivation to do so is the comfort and hope that we have received from God. So first of all, in verses 13 and 14, you have been chosen and called by the triune God for salvation. Your election was from before the foundation of the world. 
he says, but, you see the marked contrast there, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because, why? God has chosen you from the beginning. From the beginning, He has chosen you. He uses this, these terms of endearment, brethren, an intimate family term, and beloved of the Lord, that we are recipients of the love of God. And he uses this word that you have been chosen. You have been picked out by God himself for salvation. God's choice is motivated by his love. It's an unconditional love. And he chose us for salvation. And Paul says in this text, we should always give thanks. That The structure is such to where we owe a debt of thanksgiving. Do you feel something today that you owe a debt of thanksgiving to God for what He has given you in Christ? Paul does this. As he feels this obligation of thanks that he owes to the Lord. And so too for you. Remember the pit. If you are in Christ, remember the pit that the Lord pulled you out of. Remember all the difficulties and struggles when you were enslaved to sin and to reflect back on that. And you too owe God a debt of thanksgiving. He says He has chosen you from the beginning. Ephesians 1.4, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So clearly, election takes place. It's unconditional election. It takes place before the foundation of the world. God's election is unconditional. And you hear some say, well, that's not fair. Why does God choose one and not the other? You hear that sometimes, don't you? As you talk to people, you talk to friends, Brethren, the amazing thing is why God would choose any of us. If you begin to understand the infinite holiness of God and begin to know something of your deceitful heart and what you deserve is wrath, the fact that He would choose any is a marvel. Even the nation Israel, that passage in Deuteronomy, you're the smallest. You're th don't think it's because of you that I chose you, is a loose paraphrase of Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Bible knows nothing of a conditional election. The book of Romans, Paul sets this out in the section there in the middle of chapter 9. He concludes, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. That's what it depends upon. Some say election's not fair. Again, Paul gets to that later in Romans 9. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? He just puts it in perspective, doesn't he? One of the Puritans says, no man is damned precisely because God has not chosen him, but because he is a sinner and does willfully refuse the means of grace offered. That's why any man is damned. Because he's a sinner, not because he's not elect. Well, secondly, you were effectually called by the Spirit upon the hearing of the Gospel and when God determines the end, brethren, He ordains the means as well. As He does here, eternal election to salvation was realized in their sanctification by the Spirit and in the truth. It was for this that He called you through our Gospel. God does not convert the elect without His preordained means. To put it another way, God uses regular means to bring about supernatural purposes. The regular means of the faithful proclamation of the gospel 
is supernaturally used to transform a dead sinner and to make him alive so that he can breathe for these alive. That we who were once dead in sin. Romans chapter 10. How will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Etc. In verse 17. So then, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. In order to be saved, you must hear the Gospel, but you must believe the Gospel as well. You must believe the Gospel. And then this external call, it goes forth to repent and to believe and to trust the living Savior who is alive. But you must, you must, you must come to Him in faith and believing. As John puts it, as many as received Him, He gave the right to become sons of God. So there's a reception, there's a believing. Of course, regeneration precedes faith. This is God's work. But on the divine side, the next verse, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And so the elect are effectually called by the power of the Spirit. It's an internal transforming work of God. We need to be reminded no matter what your educational background is, no matter where you've come from, no matter how you were brought up, that we do not have it in ourselves to come. There has to be a divine enabling for us to believe the Gospel. No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me, what? Draws him, and as you know, drags him, because our will is so anti-God, apart from a supernatural work of grace in our hearts. But you must believe the truth. And faith has an object. It's not just believe in something generic, right? It has an object. And it's the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ that He really was born of a virgin, that He really did come to live a perfect life, a sinless life, and then make payment for our sins on the cross, that He really did do this. But the human side, again, salvation by grace through faith. As Paul told the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and what? You shall be saved. This goes against our society today. That, that faith has to be in something so narrow as one person, the God-man, that it has to be so narrow and zoomed in on Him. You hear this talk, well, He has a lot of faith. We'll think, we think He'll come out of that cancer. Faith in what? <laughs> Oftentimes, right? You hear this kind of talk. Some say as long as you're sincere. Those people over there, 100 yards, they're sincere about worshiping something. Isn't that enough? No, it's not. Being sincere is not enough. It's a fallacy. It's false thinking. Let me try to illustrate it like this. Suppose this evening your child falls ill in the middle of the night, God forbid, with a terrible attack of asthma. You call the doctor on the 24-hour line and he prescribes a medication to the 24-hour pharmacy. You hurry in the middle of the night to go and get the medicine. You administer the medicine, but the child dies. The reason is the doctor called in the wrong medicine. He called in the wrong medicine. Maybe it was a long night or whatever, but although you had faith that the medicine would save your child, and even sincerely administered it every hour on the hour, your faith could not save the child because the object of your belief was vain. You see, the voice of the world says, 
As long as you have earnest faith in something, that's enough. That's the key. No. What you believe matters when it comes to salvation. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way. There is no other name under heaven given by which we must be saved. Well, and then moving on in the text, he says from the beginning for salvation through sanctification. Um, I could, we're going to not spend a whole lot of time on that. Suffice it to say, sanctification is the idea. It refers to the setting apart process, being made holy. Our confession, chapter 13, delineates that very nicely. Um, this is the idea here. It's a positional sanctification, yes, but it's a progressive sanctification as well. Well, moving on, we've considered the past, being elected, um, believing, being effectually called, having f- faith in its object, the Lord Jesus Christ, believing in the truth. And now, at the end of verse 14, we see this future glory. It says, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Purpose of your election is that you would be glorified with Christ. That you may gain, he says here in the text. He's, he's mentioned that in 1 Thessalonians as well, that type of language. Why do elected people bring glory to God? It's an obvious question, isn't it? It's not a mystery, right? It emphasizes that only God is to be glorified in the saving of sinners. Not this shared glory that I was so smart enough that I figured it all out. I read enough books. I graduated from you know, enough schools. No. It's that God gets the glory. I mean, if you saved your three-year-old boy from drowning in the backyard pool, how foolish it would for him to get out and to start boasting about how he saved himself, even, even though he's in there drowning, right? That's the idea. It's foolish for us to boast like that. That somehow we've had some role in our salvation. It is all His divine enabling. John Piper has said, make man see his utter dependence on God's mercy and magnify the glory of God's free grace. That is why God has pleasure in election. It magnifies His name. That golden chain of salvation in Romans chapter 8, those whom He predestined, He called, He justified, and He glorified. Those four words could sum up verses 13 and 14 very very neatly. He glorifies them. He brings them to their end, their intended end. The doctrine of election has many benefits. It it crushes human pride. It it, it realizes that that we've got nothing to contribute. It brings comfort and joy. That if my salvation did depend on me, I can't trust me. (laughs) But, But the Lord's the one that's done this work. And so it brings comfort. It brings assurance of salvation. It brings joy. It provides security. And the ultimate purpose is that it brings about His glory. So, just as remembering our divine call provokes an attitude of gratitude, so also the prospect of consummate glory inspires hope and thankfulness in us. These are the things we should be thankful for. First, we look, be thankful for the triune God and the work of your salvation. Now secondly, in verse 15, hold tenaciously to the truth. Verse 15 says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. The evidence of our election 
is our obedience to his revealed will. That's the evidence of our election. Somebody that's living a carnal lifestyle that says, oh yes, I'm a Christian, yes, I've been chosen by him, but there's no fruit, there's no evidence. Jesus said you'll know them by their fruits. In a sense, we can be fruit inspectors, not sinful criticism, but fruit inspectors. There'll be some obvious fruit. He says, so then, look at the structure here, so then, brethren, another way to put it is, therefore, here's the practical conclusion of all of this good news that I've just set forth. Here's the conclusion of it. And he gives two present tense imperatives here, to stand firm and to hold fast. Paul is making a great application, not only to the two verses that we've just considered, but really the, the previous chapter, and probably the whole book as well. Um, the idea up in verse 3 and 4 where he says, let no one deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, that is the day of the Lord. And the man of lawlessness has revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God, an object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself to be God. He says in verse 2 that you would not be quickly shaken from your composure. And so the conclusion here is to stand firm. Don't be moved by political upheavals, by North Korea shooting rockets at South Korea. Don't be moved by these types of things. Don't be moved by the carnal depravity that you see around you, and yes, even the religious apostasy that is rampant in our day. Don't be moved, but stand firm. Let no one deceive you, but then positively stand firm and hold fast to the truth. Linsky sums up what he's saying here is this. It's a courageous, manly standing combined with masterful, strong holding, both of which are wrought by the grace received. That the Thessalonians would not allow themselves to be shaken or disturbed. This word he uses for stand means to Stand firm, there's a sense in which it means to persevere, to press on, to keep one standing. The idea is to not lose any ground. So you put that in a military context, you, you don't lose ground. You're standing firm, and yeah, even in a sense, advancing, but you're not losing ground. Usually Paul uses this verb with an object. In 1 Thessalonians 3, he says, For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Perhaps a better known passage, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. And so here we supply. It's the idea of persevering in godliness and rectitude. It's connected to the next verb and the next imperative that he says, holding firm. Holding to the traditions which you were taught. And so, we too need to hold fast to the Word of God. You'll see why I'm using the phrase Word of God there in a moment. Don't listen to the lies of Antichrist. Don't listen to the delusions of others that have been deluded. Don't listen to those things. But he says, hold fast to the tradition. Now this needs some explanation. Because there's cultural and ecclesiastical baggage with the word tradition, isn't there? Think of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, you start thinking of traditions, right? That that the Roman Catholic Church has, the candles, the robes, the Latin Mass, their heretical view of the Lord's Supper, all of these various traditions, so there's baggage with that word. Is Paul speaking of those types of things? Absolutely not. 
is all tradition bad? No. Most of us celebrated a Thanksgiving holiday. There, there may be a few that say they don't celebrate any holidays and, and so forth. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but that's become a tradition in our country in recent years. Our church seeks to have an annual family camp by which we gather together as families and go up to a mountain and hear the word of God and fellowship together and have that extended time together. Uh, men's campouts, you could just list and list and list the various things that are not clearly revealed in Scripture that it's okay to do those things. Our own family used to have a tradition of, I think it was walnut waffles on Christmas morning or something, and that tradition's been broken. Now it's changed to an egg casserole. That's okay. That's all right, right? But when Paul uses this word, there's a different nuance to it. And let me explain this. The, the word actually means to give over that which is delivered over, and it actually is used many times in the New Testament, speaking of the substance of a teaching that has now been handed over to someone. And so that's the sense in which Paul is using it. I'll elaborate on that in a moment. Uh, the Pharisees got in trouble for their traditions, remember? Our Lord spoke very vehemently towards them. Uh, Matthew 15, I'll just read a few verses for us. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And then further down in verse 9, <clears throat> quoting Isaiah, I believe, but in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And he goes on to talk about what defiles us is what comes out of our heart, not what comes in. Now, let's say, now we have to be careful because sometimes churches can begin traditions like the Roman Catholic Church. Let's say you would not be allowed in the door in the back, you know, if a church was to do this, unless you had a skirt that was a certain length, or you had a certain tie, or it had to be a red tie, or something like that, that can become a tradition. We won't let you in unless you do this. No, that's wrong. Man looks at the outward, and God looks at the heart. So where we get in trouble with some of our traditions is when we try to impose them on others. You understand what I'm saying? Traditions that are outside of the Bible... And when we impose those on others, that's where we begin to get into trouble. That's where legalism comes in. And so we must be very careful with that. Well, the word actually is used in a positive sense outside of the New Testament as well, and it referred to an early Christian catechism or creed as well. Uh, Paul, actually in 1 Corinthians 11, a passage on the Lord's Supper, he says, he uses this word, I received from the Lord what I also handed over to you of how to practice the Lord's Supper, the second ordinance, right? He's handing it over. Paradosis, it's the same word. He's handing it to them. And so, Paul in our text says, hold to the traditions. And this is the idea of holding fast, holding tight to the traditions. And so, to hold fast to truth to the truth of who Christ is, to the truth of what His Word is, to have a masterful grip on a body of doctrinal truth revealed in the Scriptures. But Paul here makes no distinction whether it was oral or written tradition that, that he 
Um, you know, it's, obviously it was orally when he was with them, but then through these letters as well. But the worth of the tradition does not lie in the form, but in the source or the quality of its content. And then thirdly, the Lord will cause you to persevere in the faith. What is the result of obeying these commands? Standing firm, holding fast to the truth, you will not be misguided by false teaching. To the degree that you're standing firm in doctrinal truth, you're not going to be easily swayed by the winds of doctrine and swayed here and there. If the readers truly have faith in the truth, they will be able to stand firm. They will be able to hold on to the truth. And it's an original context. This was a persecuted church. So what encouragement this was for them as they would read this letter. Now, brethren, perseverance is absolutely necessary. You must persevere unto the end if you will be saved. You must. And I know how weary that can be as we battle remaining sin. As we seek to put to death remaining sin. How weary it can be in the battle. But He provides the ability. He provides the strength. He's given us one another as well. The whole context of the church we've been looking at in Ephesians 4 talks about the dynamic of the body and the role that each of us have. That's why we need to be a part of a local church so that we can fulfill that role as well. But be encouraged as you see. Yes, it's a slow conformity to Christ, but if He's been working in you for some time and you've been a Christian for some time, you are more and more being conformed into the image of Christ, being prepared for that day of glory. Jude, in verse 3, says, I felt it necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. It's His enabling grace. And we shouldn't be surprised by difficulties. Just look back in chapter 1 of this letter here. In verses 3 and 4. Here he is again, giving thanks, a debt of thanks. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. He goes on to say it's a plain indication of God's righteous judgment and so forth for the next several verses there. But this was a church that knew real persecution. They understood the difficulty of seeking to live the Christian life in a lost and dying and perverted world. But it is His enabling grace that enables us to persevere to the end. What should, we, what should our thoughts be towards someone that espouses a Christianity that never has any, any trials, no, not even a sneeze of a cold. What should be our attitude towards that? The faith movement is a big one. The Pentecostal movement, you know, God doesn't want you to be sick. Nothing but Mercedes and big houses and so forth. The masterful John Bunyan wrote of such a man in Pilgrim's Progress, Mr. Byans. Byans and he explains how his religion is different from that of the Christian. He says this, now listen carefully. It is true that my religion differs when compared to that more strict variety, but only in two small points. First, we never strive against the wind and the tide. Secondly, 
we always are very zealous in following a religion that parades in silver slippers. We love to walk when the sun shines and when people applaud. You see the fallacy of this man's religion, right? And unfortunately, that teaching goes on today. Many Christians think that way. Many who take the name of Christ think that way, and it's a deplorable teaching. Mr. Byans has many descendants that are alive and well in our day. Mr. Joel Osteen and others, very similar message. But this is why persecution is the great revealer of who is truly a child of God. Persecution comes, the wheat and the chaff are separated. And the Lord knows his own and leaves them not. We've been praying recently and tried to make it a regular practice for the persecuted church. Just had the International Day of Prayer. There's real persecution going on right now for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of men who will not faithful, will not compromise the message and faithfully stand up to persecutors. The freedoms we have in America are very unusual when compared to the rest of the world as far as what they go through. So, this is why Paul gives such strong imperatives here. You must stand firm. You must hold fast to the truth. Hold fast to the Word of God. So, our last point, and more briefly, are you thankful for the comfort and hope you have from God? Look again with me at verses 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. You have received eternal comfort and good hope, more fruit of your salvation, this comfort, this um, hope that we have. Paul often uses a benediction and praise in such a way, this is a, probably a prayer wish, as Hendrickson and Alinsky would say, but um, the idea that it's in the, God's in the third person, but, but to hold fast, in 1 Thessalonians he says, hold fast to what is good, and then in the next verses he gives the means to obey such a command, for God himself will sanctify you unto the end. Notice the wording of verse 16, notice how the Lord Jesus Christ is put first, and then God um, obviously pointing to his deity and equality with the Father, but mark it well that the comfort that we receive comes from both the Father and the Son. These participles, these loved us and given us eternal comfort, these are packed with meaning. It's something he's done in the past. It's the blessings of redemption for us. Think of 1 John 3.16. It is the Father's great act of love in sending the Son to die for sinners. And it's by grace. Together, this stresses God's love and His divine gifts of encouragement and hope. And they're all based on God's unmerited favor, based on His grace, which He's freely bestowed upon us. And in the Bible, when you see hope and comfort together, it indicates that comfort about present salvation which we receive on an ongoing basis for those of us who are in Christ, it fuels assurance and hope about future salvation. Hebrews 6.19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. Steadfast hope. So brothers and sisters, hope is based on the promises of God. 
the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses this word 30 plus times, and it always refers to the certain expectation of what lies ahead for us, pointing for us to future salvation, that consummate time when we will be with him in glory forever, when our union with Christ will be fully realized in a sense in which it is not now when we see him face to face. And then in verse 17, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work indeed. Paul's request for them is that God would encourage and strengthen their hearts. And our response should be a deep-seated desire to please the one who has given us all of these blessings in Christ. The result of good hope expresses itself, it says in the text, in every good work and word. So all this has come from God and has through thanksgiving returned to Him. All we do, all we say, every good work, every word. As John says in 1 John, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Simply put, we have been furnished with all of this comfort, all of this joy, all of this hope that we have, and we are to be doers of the word. Let's consider just a couple of applications as we, <clears throat> as we end. So I ask you again as I began, what are you thankful for? What is it that, that, that fuels an attitude of gratitude deep down within your own heart? What is it that when no one else is looking, when you're not saying anything, when you're alone with God, that you give thanks to Him for? Are you thankful for your salvation if you're in Christ today? Are you thankful for the salvation of others? Following the example of the Apostle Paul, I owe a debt of thanks because of the work of God in your hearts, you Thessalonians, and likewise how we ought to be thankful for our brethren in the context of the local church and beyond. Because salvation is God's work, we can have true eternal security. We can have confidence that we will spend an eternity with Him if we're living for Christ, if we've been transformed by Christ. As Paul says in Romans 8, nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. We have assurance. We have great hope. By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, right? Thomas Watson says, let us then ascribe the whole work of grace to the pleasure of God's will. God did not choose us because we were worthy, but by choosing us, He makes us worthy. So we are masterpieces in His hands. It's conforming us more and more to the image of Christ, removing remaining sin, cultivating more holiness within us, all of the fruits of the Spirit. So your response should be one of a joyfully obedient life. And the power to live a holy life comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. The power to be holy comes ultimately from the indwelling Christ and His Spirit. So be thankful for the fruit of salvation in your life. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, as you think about the things that you're thankful for, it's probably very shallow, very close to you. Perhaps it's the new car. Maybe it's the big house. Maybe it's the the big 401k, whatever. Maybe it's some of those types of things. But there's one thing that's marked differently. It's your selfish pursuits that consume you. It's the things that are going to better you. Not living for God's glory, living for your own glory. 
And all the works and deeds that you seek to do are not pleasing to God if they're not done with the right motives. You can volunteer 10,000 hours at the rescue mission. You can give half of your income to the poor, but if you're not doing it for the Lord and for His glory, as Luther says, nothing but splendid sins. So we have to have the right motive. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, look to Jesus Christ as a suitable Savior. Look to His cross through the eye of faith, not images and pictures, but through the eye of faith. Look to Him who died for sinners and throw yourself on His mercy, whose blood will then become your peace, and whose condemnation that He took in our stead becomes your freedom. So you can go. The shackles of sin broken. Being born again. Being new in Christ. Repent and believe the glorious Gospel of God's grace. Don't be deceived. Like these in the middle of chapter 2 here, don't be deceived. Don't harden your heart, but come to Him. And then finally, for those of us who are in Christ, are you standing firm? Are you one that's blown about by every wind of doctrine that comes, every new concept, the newest book on the Christian bookshelf, Christian bookstore on the shelf there? Are you one that's just enticed by all these things rather than being fascinated and in love with this book, the living Word of God? This will enable you to stand firm, putting yourself under all the means of grace, Standing firm in doctrine, understanding what doctrine is, attending and learning and resolving to stand firm. I think there's an application here as well, not only for each one of us to be doctrinally grounded, but for you fathers to make sure that your children are doctrinally grounded. Those of us who homeschool or use Christian schools or whatever, all of those, whatever your schooling method in seeking to instill the values and the doctrines that we believe and hold dear into the hearts of our children, it's up to God to save them. So often, they go to the public college as they move out of the home, and they're just swayed away. They've got no theological mooring. And so fathers, you have a responsibility to catechize or somehow train and instill doctrine into the hearts of your children. So as it were, their theological antennas, when they hear this perverse stuff, will begin to wiggle and they'll say, that's not doctrinally sound. It doesn't agree with what I've been taught from the Word of God. We have a responsibility to do this for the sake of the next generation. So don't neglect that. Hold fast to the traditions. Sounds funny. Hold fast to the truth. Hold fast to the Word of God. Test yourself. Do you long to read and meditate on the Word of God? Does it bring delight to your soul to be able to sit down for 10, 20, 30 minutes and to read the living Word of God and let the Spirit of God speak to you through the Word? As the psalmist says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. Pray that the Lord would give you the heart of the psalmist. Pray that He would work in your heart. Do you long to come to hear the Word preached, to attend unto various Bible studies and Sunday schools and so forth so that you can be more grounded in the Word. How can we stand firm? We must press on towards the goal. We must be faithful in pressing on. Philippians chapter 3. Not that I have already attained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold 
of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching towards, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Quote the uh, writer to the Hebrews, to run the Christian race with endurance, fixing your eyes on Christ. That's the key. That's the key to pressing on. So Lord, how I pray that our hearts are stirred to a greater thankfulness for the work of the Lord and what He's done in our hearts. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You for the living Word of God. We thank You, O Lord, that You are the one who is the author of salvation. You are the one that has transformed each of us who are in Christ. And Lord, we owe You a debt of thanks. And we give You thanks now. We pray, O God, for any here that do not know you, may today be the day of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.